Our New Testament reading this evening comes from Colossians 1, verses 9 through 23. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The Old Testament reading this evening is Psalm 15. A Psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your holy tent, in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart who does not slander his neighbor and does no slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach against his friend in whose eyes a vile person is despised but who honors those who fear the Lord who swears to his own hurt and does not change who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent he who does these things shall never be moved. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please open this passage to us this evening by your Holy Spirit that we might understand what it has to teach us and how it points us to Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Don't you just hate prerequisites? You know, those things you have to do in order to do something else. Like uh, when my computer doesn't have enough power to play the latest video game. 
Um, or when I don't have the right ingredient for a recipe I want to make. Um, or when I, get in, when I can't get into that fancy airline club because I don't have the Platinum Miles membership. Uh, my dad got me in once, and I can't be happy or content in an airport ever again. It's just too nice in there. Prerequisites, they aren't always fun, but they are sometimes necessary. In this psalm, we're going to see some of the prerequisites for someone to enter into God's holy sanctuary. Uh, If you come to my sermons on the previous psalms, you'll know that this psalm is part of a set of seven psalms, Psalms 11 through 17. And all of these psalms unpack themes from Psalms 9 and 10. Last week, in Psalm 14, we heard about this general corruption and evil throughout all humanity. But we also heard about a group of righteous people. In this passage, David examines what these righteous people are like. What sort of person do you have to be to find refuge in God? As we look at this passage, I'm only going to have two points this evening. Um, I'm going to do something a little unusual, though. Uh, My first point is going to have five applications. Um, Don't worry, I'll I'll try to be brief with each one. Um, But my first point is going to be that the person who can dwell with God is someone who walks in integrity. And we're going to have to unpack what integrity means. Um, our, this psalm gives us five main ways that uh, integrity is expressed. So that's going to be our first point. And uh, then secondly, we're going to see how Jesus fulfills this psalm. Now, I know every time I preach on a psalm, I end this way, but I think it's going to be especially important this evening. Uh, that's because if you're anything like me, then as you read through some of the prerequisites you see in this passage, uh, you may discover that you don't quite measure up. So it's going to be extra important to understand how Jesus allows even poor sinners like us to find encouragement in this passage. So we're going to have a first point where we see what it means to walk in integrity, and then we're going to connect it to Jesus. So our first point. Our psalm starts with a question. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Uh, Maybe you remember from Psalm 14 last week, besides everything we heard about evil, some of the things we said about this group of the righteous, right? Um, We were told three main things about them. Number one, we were told that God is with them. Number two, we were told that God is their refuge. And number three, we were told that their salvation is going to come out of Zion. Now, all three of these things reflect the imagery of God's sanctuary. Uh, First of all, the sanctuary is where God is preeminently with his people, where he comes to dwell with them. Uh, Secondly, the building, first of the tabernacle, and then later of the temple, itself depicts God's refuge, his sheltering protection for his people. It's the primary picture of God's refuge. And thirdly, where is Mount Zion? Uh, Well, it's in Jerusalem, as we said. It's the place God's chosen to put his sanctuary, his temple. And so as we start verse 15, we've already been primed uh, to see that this this group of righteous people receives God's refuge at God's sanctuary, in God's temple. And so now we're ready for this question. Who is permitted to enter into this sanctuary? Well, do you remember the design of the sanctuary? I don't know if you... uh, 
went over it recently in Sunday school or something like that, or if it's been a while since you got to that part in your Bible reading, hopefully your Bible has a nice picture, as some of them do. Um, verse 1 calls it a tent, right? Because in David's time, we, have, we don't have the temple yet. Solomon built this big, marvelous stone temple. But in David's time, the sanctuary is something we call the tabernacle. It's a tent. It's a place where sacrifices are offered and God meets with his people. Um, and this tent is screened off all around and is guarded by the Levites. It's uh, not just the kind of place you can casually wander into. God's presence is a dangerous thing because God hates human sin. And so in order for God to be able to dwell with his people, this sin problem has to be dealt with in two ways. First, sacrifices have to be offered to cleanse the sanctuary from this contaminating influence of the people's sin. And secondly, the people themselves have to make an effort to keep themselves clean. This cleanness is partly a matter of following these rituals, of of eating certain kinds of animals, avoiding contact with dead bodies and things like that, but there's also an ethical component as well. It's not enough just to follow all the correct rituals. Uh, If they worship other gods or if they oppress the poor, then their sin will ultimately pollute the sanctuary, and if those goes unchecked for too long, it will become impossible for God to dwell with them. So after David has told us about the righteous in Psalm 14 who can find refuge in God's sanctuary, he has to confront a problem. Given this danger, how is it possible for humans, sinful humans, to dwell with the righteous God? What kind of holiness is going to be required if we're going to find refuge in him so that these, they can never be moved, as David says in the last verse of this psalm? Uh, and this psalm, it doesn't actually say anything about ritual purity. It doesn't address that aspect. It focuses entirely um, on how we relate to other human beings. Does, does that surprise you at all? Um, you see, we, we can't ever disconnect our relationship with God from our relationship with other human beings. God has made all humans in his image, and he cares about every single one, especially the poor, the weak, and the vulnerable. And that means it's not possible to love God rightly without also loving your neighbor as yourself. Um, And so David concludes that if we're going to stay at God's tent, on God's holy hill, we're going to have to be a people who walk blamelessly and do what is right, as he says in verse 2. We have to be people that... These, these words describe the way we need to conduct ourselves towards other people. The first term, blameless, uh, could also be translated as perfect or just complete. Um, we can think of it as expressing integrity. Of course, that just raises the question, what does integrity mean? Right? Um, well, integrity is a certain consistency to our moral conduct. It means our life hangs together. We aren't saying and doing something over here we're with one group of people that we aren't also saying and doing over here with another group of people. In, in some, it means that you're not a hypocrite. This demand for integrity, it doesn't necessarily mean sinless perfection. David knows that no one meets this standard. Uh, and as we, saw, as we saw in the last psalm, everybody uh, sins. There's no one who does good. And we see other psalms where David confesses his sin. So there's an awareness that David needs forgiveness. But there's also a demand here that those who would dwell with God have a sincere and genuine obedience that impacts their whole lives. 
that their lives be characterized by doing what is right, the just, upright thing, the thing that's on the level. Well, the rest of this psalm just fleshes out what this integrity and doing right looks like. Let's go through the psalm and see that here. It starts in verse 2 with, speaks truth in his heart. You see, before we can talk about whether you're saying the right thing or doing the right thing, we need to talk about whether you have the truth in your heart. The Bible never lets us just get focused on externals. It calls us to look at our hearts. And this is a part of integrity, right? Does the inside match up with the outside? Does what's going on in your heart match up with who you profess to be publicly? So here's our first application. Um, what's, what's your internal monologue like? What are the things that you say in your heart when nobody else can hear them? And, and what does that say about you? Um, what, what would we learn if somebody taped your thoughts and played them back? It's a convicting, convicting question, isn't it? Would they be true, good, and upright thoughts? Or would they be false and evil? You see, because sin starts in our hearts, the things that you think are a window into who you really are. Um, and that's our first application. And boy, that's, that's a pretty challenging one, isn't it? It's a challenging one for me too, because I can't tell you how often I stop that tape in my head and written there is something arrogant or hateful or lustful or covetousness, covetous or any number of other things. Uh, so that, that's our first inventory to take tonight. Where, where is your thought life? What are you saying in your heart? So we start with the heart, and then we head to the tongue. Verse 3 says, Who does not slander with his tongue, and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up reproach against his friend. Integrity is not just a matter of believing rightly, it's also a matter of speaking rightly. The Hebrew word here translated as slander is a little bit obscure. Uh, it's hard to tell exactly what it means. It might have something to do with entrapping somebody through your speech. Uh, but luckily, we have a story that helps us figure it out. Uh, maybe you remember the story of David and his son Absalom, who rebels against him. Well, in the context of that story, there's another mini-story that plays out. There's this guy called Mephibosheth. It's kind of a fun name to say. Um, you can work on that for your difficult Bible names. Um, and Mephibosheth's story is that he's Jonathan's son. That's the Jonathan who has been great friends to David before he dies. And so even though Mephibosheth is therefore the grandson of Saul, David's enemy, David spares him and, uh, and acts kindly with him for Jonathan's sake. And Mephibosheth, in return, acts faithful to, faithfully to David. But then we have this rebellion of Absalom. And another character enters the scene, this guy called Ziba, who is Mephibosheth's servant. And he comes to David and he says, look, Mephibosheth is really happy that you're getting kicked out of power. He's just having a great time. But I, don't worry, I support you and see I've brought you some uh, food and provisions. And by the way, an important key detail is that Mephibosheth is a paraplegic. His legs don't work. So he actually doesn't have the opportunity to come to David and say anything otherwise. And as it turns out later... Ziba was lying. It wasn't true. He was taking advantage of Mephibosheth's disability in order to get all of his land. And when Mephibosheth finally comes uh, to David at, or, uh, and David questions him after he's returned to power, uh, it's this word that Mephibosheth uses to describe what Ziba has done to him. 
Ziba's used these false words, lies, in order to betray and take advantage of his master. So that's the kind of speech we find forbidden here. We are forbidden to use our words to tear down and destroy others. Um, And the verse ends like this, uh, nor takes up a reproach against his friends. You know, while it's good and righteous to bring loving rebuke to one's friends from time to time, Proverbs talks about the faithful wounds of a friend. This verse isn't talking about that. It's not talking about loving rebuke, but rather scornful words that are intended to shame and put down others. So here's our second application this evening. What are your words like to others? Are your words spoken in love and intended to build up? Or are they intended to tear down and make you look good at others' expense? Do you use your words as weapons to hurt others? Or perhaps do you use your words as traps ready to spring on the unsuspecting? Are you communicating with others in ways that uphold the truth? Or are you seeking to deceive and manipulate? The person of integrity speaks with honest words, but we're so often tempted to cut corners, aren't we? So to not quite speak the whole truth. So that's our second application this evening. Next, this psalm moves from our words to our social relations. Verse 4 says, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Uh, You see, the person with integrity has the right relationship of honor and shame to those around them. And that's important because, you see, the world at large, it doesn't always honor the right things, and it's not always ashamed of the right things. I mean, what are some of the things that our society honors? Just think about that. I mean, one, ex- I, one example is um, our society really honors work to the point of workaholism. Um, I don't think that's any more obvious anywhere than uh, how we valorize CEOs. Uh, for instance, um, we love to talk about Steve Jobs' success at Apple. He's gotten some popular books and treatments, even though we also know that he achieved that success at least partly through relentlessly verbally abusing his employees. Um, You see, we as a culture, we're quick to honor those who are successful, even if they had to become horrible people in order to do so. So That's an example of us honoring something that maybe we shouldn't be honoring. What about about the other side of things? What's something our culture is ashamed of that it really shouldn't be? I, uh, I, I watched an episode of The Bachelor a while back. Um, I, ha- I have a girlfriend now and comes with these sorts of hazards. Um, anybody who watched the last season of The Bachelor knows that one of the most shocking facts about The Bachelor from last season was that he was a virgin. Just shocking. And they kept talking about it. They wouldn't stop talking about it every single episode. Why is it that that is something our culture has chosen that should be shocking and embarrassing. Surely there's much better things that we could be ashamed about going on in our society. So our culture is very out of whack with what we honor and what we shame. But the person of integrity is someone who finds vile behavior shameful and fearing the Lord honorable. The people he esteems, the people who are his role models, they are his role models because they are excellent at fearing the Lord. 
This is our third application tonight. Who do you honor? Who are your role models? Are they the rich, the powerful, those who are successful in the world's terms? Or do you esteem people who are humble, the person who is loving, the person who excels at putting others before themselves? Who is it that you wish you could become? If you had a poster of your idol on your bedroom wall, whose poster would be there? So that's our third, that's our third application. Who, who is it that you are esteeming and emulating? From here, our passage goes on to mention oaths in verse 4. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Uh, to swear to one's hurt is a little piece of technical legal language in the Hebrew. It means you took an oath, and it turns out that it's really going to cost you to keep it, whether you anticipated that or not. Um, you would become worse off by keeping your word. Well, integrity means that you act according to what you have promised. You don't try to weasel out of something you swore to, even if it hurts. So, in brief, this is our fourth application this evening. Are you a person who keeps their promises? Do you do what you say you are going to do? And that doesn't just apply when you've taken an oath or signed a contract either. After all, what does Jesus say to us? He says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. So even if you aren't swearing an oath, we should still stand by what we have said. How are you doing with that this evening? Are you the kind of person who makes big promises but then tries to get out of their commitments? Are you someone who can be relied on or are you someone who tries to bail as soon as the going gets tough? So that, that's our fourth application this evening. And finally, right at the end, this passage gets financial. Verse 5, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. Okay, so what's this about? Why are we suddenly talking about money? Well, it's because if there's one place where your integrity, or lack thereof, is really evident, it's in how you spend your money, right? Um, and this is our fifth application. Are your on-the-record principles consistent with your budget spreadsheet? Or in other words, are you putting your money where your mouth is? Uh, this, and the sum, it, it zooms in on two particular financial areas uh, which might reflect our integrity. The first is who, put, who does not put out his money at interest. Now, a little explanation about this. Um, is this passage and others like it in the Bible saying that it is always sinful to lend money at interest. Well, maybe you read that verse and says, well, that's obviously what it says right there. And um, there have been people in the history of the church who have agreed with you. So th does that mean that we basically need to withdraw from our whole modern financial system? Should I take all the money out of my savings account where it's collecting 0.000001%? Um, some, some theologians throughout history have thought so, um, thought this is just a ban at any kind of lending money at interest. Um, some other theologians, though, not least John Calvin, who's no slouch theologically, um, have pointed out that the passages that treat this theme at length, right? This is like a one-verse summary. If you look at some of the longer passages, always focus the damage lending at interest does to the poor. Um, Calvin believes that it would actually be going beyond what Scripture says to say that all lending at interest is forbidden, um, but it's rather lending that's harmful and exploitative 
that is banned here. Um, so according to Calvin, and I think I agree with his interpretation of everything Scripture has to say, the broad principle is here that we sh- should not um, attempt to enrich ourselves off the poverty of the poor. Rather than loaning money to the poor, what we are called to do is give money to the poor freely. Um, now, I don't know how many of you make loans to other people. Um, Maybe you do. Uh, if, if so, uh, this passage is a caution to do so according to the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Supply and demand are not the only rule that must be followed in your practices. And just because the free market allows something doesn't make it ethical. You have a responsibility to ask how your practices might hurt the person you loan to. And if you do lend money, it would be wise if you were prepared to lose it, right? Because it would be better to lose all that money than to pursue exploitative methods in recovering the loss. But don't think that those of us who aren't lending money are off the hook. There's still plenty to think about here, right? How does the way you use your money affect the poor? This is kind of a difficult question in the modern economy, and I don't want to attempt to oversimplify it. Um, Sadly, I don't think it's the case that we can just buy fair trade food and invest in mutual funds that are labeled as socially responsible, and then that we'll be sure that our money isn't being used for exploitative purposes. Um, uh, it, it really gets pretty depressing when you look into this. It's hard to tell for certain that your money is not hurting anybody. Maybe even impossible. But even if it is impossible to be absolutely certain that our money is not being used for evil in any way, um, we're still called to think carefully about it. Um, if our smartphone price was kept down by an abusive factory conditions in China, that's something that we at least need to think about and care about. Um, We here in America, we're actually pretty wealthy compared to a lot of the rest of the world, and we need to be thinking about how we use our money and whether it actually reflects the values we say we have. Again, I'll reiterate, it's a complicated issue, and so I'm not going to try to give you simple prescriptions here from the pulpit. Rather, I want to exhort you to take this value with you, and think about it. And honestly, it's been a personally convicting point for me. Um, When I'm making financial decisions, there's a lot of questions I ask myself, but I don't tend to find myself asking, how does this decision affect the poor? Um, Our passage, though, clearly puts that on our agenda if we want to be people of integrity. Um, Our passage also rules out bribery. It's a very obvious and Uh, overt uh, subversion of integrity, right? When you're willing to take money in exchange for committing a blatant injustice in condemning an innocent person. Um, That's definitely the opposite of integrity. And the Bible has a very clear sense for the way that that money can corrupt legal justice, right? The vulnerable person, uh, the poor person, uh, is often the one who gets the brunt of the legal system, while wealthy people often get off scot-free, I don't know if any of you are going to be on judge, going to, are, are judges or are going to be on a jury anytime soon. If you are, please don't take a bribe. But there's a regular everyday version of this sin, too, isn't there? That's the sin of favoritism. Favoritism of the rich over the poor. It's the kind that James talks about in James 2 when he's describing the situation in which a rich man and a poor man come into a church and everybody's really uh, uh, welcoming to the rich person and sees them in the best place. 
So here's something you can ask yourself this morning, even if you're not uh, a judge. Are you the kind of person who shows no partiality? Would you give the same honor and attention to a poor person or an outcast person that you would to a rich person or a celebrity? That's our fifth application. That's the first point. On to our second point. Uh, And let me just check in with you at this point in the sermon. Are you convicted at all? Um, Were there any of these applications where you thought, maybe I'm not fit to dwell in God's sanctuary? This is the sort of passage that is very convicting, isn't it? And of course, there's a sense in which conviction is a good thing. Uh, The first step uh, is admitting you have a problem, right? So we need God's word to show us the sin we didn't see before. But what do you do if you hear this passage and you think, I don't measure up, I'm unworthy? Does that mean that God cannot be a refuge for you, that you cannot expect his help or salvation to come from Zion because you are not pure enough? Of course, even in the Old Testament, it's clear that all humans are sinners and God is merciful and forgiving. But this all becomes so much clearer once we can clearly see Jesus doesn't it? For we come to understand that Jesus must pray these psalms before we can pray them. Jesus has to walk the path of perfect integrity before we can begin to correct our path and walk more and more in integrity. In other words, the gospel teaches us that when we see the depths of our sin in these passages, we should look to Jesus' righteousness for help. You see, Jesus' own body is the fulfillment of what the tabernacle and the temple pointed forward to. Um, He is Emmanuel, right? God with us in the flesh. John 1.14 says that the Word, the Son of God, became flesh and dwelt with us. John goes on in the very next chapter, and he shows us Jesus going into the temple. Do you remember, what does Jesus find in the temple? Uh, This psalm is very relevant to it. He finds money changers, People making money off of the people coming to the temple. This is financial exploitation of the poor in full swing in God's very house. Um, And Jesus shows his zeal for the purity of God's house, which, notice, is the same thing as zeal to prevent the exploitation of the poor. Jesus shows this zeal by driving the money changers out. John follows this up with Jesus saying something kind of cryptic. He says... Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. John tells us that Jesus is referring to himself. Jesus' body is the temple he's talking about that's going to be laid in a grave for three days and then raised again. You see, Jesus is the one who truly embodies the integrity and the righteousness that expresses itself in honest speech and just actions. Um, And at the end of the gospel, Jesus tells his disciples that he is sending the Spirit who will be with them forever. Um, You see, in the tabernacle of old, you could just visit, right? In this psalm, David only talks about sojourning in God's tent. But through the Spirit, Jesus will dwell with his people constantly and permanently. So all of these themes out of these psalms come together and are fulfilled in him. Okay, so what does, what does that mean for you? Well, it means that dwelling with God is not a matter of climbing up the hill to God 
on your own works. Rather, God himself comes down to dwell with you in Jesus. In Jesus, God fulfills the righteous requirement of the law so that we sinners can take refuge with him. So what does that mean? Does it mean, since we dwell with God on the basis of Jesus' righteousness freely given to us and not earned by our works in any way, does that mean that there's no need for our holiness? How does that fit into the picture? Well, um, we ought to be transformed by this love that he's shown for us. We ought to be so entranced with the beauty of who Jesus is that our lives are transformed into lives of new obedience. But that's not because we're trying to pay our own debt. Rather, it should be out of gratitude for God's grace given to us. You see, God didn't just forgive our sins so that he could leave us in our sins. Um, We must be made holy for our ultimate dwelling with God, right? The full ultimate expression of our dwelling with God is yet to come on the day when Jesus returns. God is at work in us by his Holy Spirit. He's preparing us for that day, the day when we will see him as he is and all of our sin and suffering will be over. The integrity that Jesus showed us um, really is the path we walk to heaven. But it's not a path that we walk perfectly or by our own power. It's a path down which the Holy Spirit is guiding us, patiently forging in us the image of Christ, showing us our sin more and more, patiently correcting us when we go astray, and guiding and preserving us until we are completely refined. And The New Testament tells us that this new temple is not just Jesus' physical body, but it's also the church as the body of Christ. All of us, all of you. Um, Each of us is a brick in this temple that the Holy Spirit is building, fashioning us together despite our sin into a perfect sanctuary for God so that we can be presented pure and blameless when he returns. Our purity, our blamelessness, is now not the means by which we earn God's righteousness. Rather, It is the result, the gift that's given to us and worked in us because of Jesus' righteousness. So this evening, as we look at this very convicting picture about what God requires to dwell with him, don't despair. It has all been done in Christ who goes before us. Rather, bring your failures and your sins to God's throne, knowing that you will find forgiveness there in the blood of Christ, if you repent of them. And as you endeavor to live in lives of new righteousness, don't forget that growth in integrity and perseverance in integrity doesn't depend on your own strength. Rather, it depends on God's gracious work in you by his Spirit. What a hope we have to look forward to when our pilgrimage is finally over and we arrive at God's heavenly city where there won't be any more lies, And there won't be any more slander, no more oppression, no more exploitation. But where free from our sin, we will dwell in God's presence forever, together with all of his redeemed people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we see the beautiful standard that you have set in this psalm, and yet also it's a convicting standard, it's a standard that we in so many ways don't live up to. As we look at this standard Uh, we come to you throwing ourselves on your mercy and yet confident that we will receive forgiveness because 
we also see Jesus, the one who has gone before us in the faith, perfectly following your commands, perfectly walking the path of blamelessness, perfectly doing what is right to everybody around him. And so we come to you this evening thanking you for this teaching, thanking you that you are showing us our sin and convicting us of it, but thanking you all the more that you have already forgiven us and that you are at work in our hearts to change us and bring us through to the time when we are made pure and blameless. How we long to be made pure and blameless at that time when Jesus Christ returns and we all see him together. In Jesus' name, amen.